It's good to be back with you this morning. And I want to talk about understanding Genesis. We have some uh, problems in the world today. Would you agree with that? There's some problems in the world today? Yeah. What I want to do in this first session is give you the solution to all the world's problems. How's that sound? Yeah. And that's literally true. And there is a connection with creation and evolution. There is a connection there. And so I want you to consider... Um, I want you to consider the United States of America. Now we have the most churches, we have the most seminaries, we have the most Christian colleges, Christian resources of any nation, really. What a blessing to live in the United States, really. I mean, we have our problems, certainly, but what a Christian heritage. And yet, for all of these Christian resources, would you say that politically we're becoming more Christian every day or less Christian every day? <laughs> Everywhere I go, people say that. How is it that this nation, founded primarily by Christians, on Christian principles, with all of these Christian resources, how is it that we're somehow becoming a pagan nation? What's going on? And does this have anything to do with Genesis? And I want to suggest it does. If you think about it, all the problems in society today, in the world, can be traced back in one way or another to a broken law of God. Where people have said, yeah, we know what the Bible says, but we're not going to do it that way. We want to do it this other way. And that causes problems because God does know how the universe works. He made it, and so he's given us some instructions about how we're to live if we're gonna be successful in the world in the, in the eyes of God. And so people break God's law, but why would they break God's law? Why would they say, no, we're not gonna do what the Bible says? Isn't that foolish? It is foolish. But obviously on some level, they think that the Bible really isn't true, right? I mean, if this is just a collection of fairy tales, then why would we do what it says? And where is it that people say, well, you can't trust the Bible? Where is the place that they really, really attack? It's Genesis, isn't it? That's the place where people say, yeah, I mean, maybe there was, maybe, yeah, there was the nation of Israel and maybe they were actually in captivity in Egypt, but there's no way God created. We know that millions of years of evolution is true. Genesis is the most attacked, ridiculed, scoffed at, mocked book of the Bible. And if you can't trust that first book of the Bible, why would you trust the books that come after it? You see, doubt, doubting scripture really starts in Genesis. It doesn't end there, but it starts there. And so I want to suggest to you that the real issue behind all of these problems that we have in society, people deciding that they're not going to trust the Bible, is the same issue as the creation versus evolution issue. It's really God's word versus man's word. When there's a conflict between the two, who are you going to trust? Are you going to go with what God has said or what man has said? And those really are your options, right? I want to suggest to you the loss of biblical authority beginning in Genesis is the root of the decline of Christian America. People have said, we don't believe the Bible, it's just a collection of fairy tales because you can't even trust that first chapter. In the beginning, God created. Nobody believes that anymore. We know millions of years of evolution is the way life came about. That's the scientific position. So we're told, and people have confidence in science because it makes computers work, work and puts people on the moon and all kinds of stuff, all, all this wonderful technology. We should have confidence in science. To some extent, we should. We need to recognize, though, that science is not antagonistic to what the Bible says, but is in fact founded upon it. We, we talked about that last night. So it used to be because of our Christian heritage in this nation, you could say things like abortion is wrong and homosexual behavior is wrong, adultery is wrong. And people say, well, of course, I understand that. Even, even non-Christians a lot of times would have a degree of respect for the Bible just because of our Christian heritage in this nation. You hear people say, well, you know, the good book says such and such. Today, and it's not the case. Today, you say abortion's wrong, homosexual behavior's wrong, adultery's wrong. People say, not according to my standard. Oh, yeah, and that's, that is the situation today, isn't it? Because people are not standing on the authority of God's word. You stand on the authority of God's word, then, of course, the things that God says are wrong are wrong. And evolution is one of the main ways that the secularists get people to doubt what the Bible says. Because if you can't trust that opening chapter, why would you trust what comes next? And by the way, when I talk about evolution, that's, I'm referring to the idea that all organisms are descended from a common ancestor that was something like a bacterium over billions of years. And so you are related to broccoli in the evolutionary worldview. That's your distant cousin. I mentioned that one time. I was speaking to a group of atheists. By divine providence, I had that opportunity. And uh, I mentioned to them, I said, you know, in your worldview, you're related to broccoli. That's your distant cousin. And afterwards, one of them came up to me and said, weren't you kind of poking fun at us for, for saying we believe we're related to broccoli? And I said, isn't that what you believe? He said, well, yeah. And I said, well, there you go then, right? I mean, 
if that sounds silly to you, don't shoot the messenger. Maybe you ought to reconsider your belief. I'm just reflecting back to you what you claim to believe. I'm, my point is the word evolution can just mean change. Well, we all agree things change. The world was once a paradise. Today it's not. Things have changed. The question is what kinds of change, and I don't believe in this kind of change. I do believe organisms can change, and we'll talk about that uh, later today. But they don't change from one basic kind to another. Now, if you believe this, it will have consequences for your other beliefs. What you believe about origins has consequences for what you believe about other things. If creation is true, then there are certain logical standards that stem from that. If creation is true, you're going to have laws because we have a lawgiver. God made us. He's got the right to make the rules. God's a linguistic being. He's communicated to us. He's made us in his image. And so we have the capacity for rationality. We have the capacity, at least Adam had the capacity to obey God or disobey God. He had that, that freedom of choice. And so, uh, and we chose poorly, of course, and there are consequences when we break God's law. So the idea of laws, moral laws that are objective and are the same for everyone, that's a Genesis concept, isn't it? That goes back to creation because God is the creator. We're all made in God's image. God has the same standard for all people. He's no respecter of persons. He doesn't show partiality. What about marriage? Where does the idea of marriage come from? The idea of one man and one woman united by God for life? Well, that's a Genesis concept, isn't it? God created Adam and Eve. God instituted the family unit. God created marriage. And therefore, he gets to define what marriage is. Not the Supreme Court, by the way. God defines marriage because he made it. Standards. Standards of behavior, standards of clothing. I noticed you're all wearing clothes today. I appreciate that. I'm sure you do too. Originally, it wasn't that way. Where do we learn about the origin of clothing? It's in Genesis, yeah. It goes back to creation. Meaning of life. Why is it that human life is valuable, intrinsically valuable, and more valuable than, say, animals or plants? Why is that? Because human beings are made in the image of God. That's what it comes down to. That's why I can't just go out and shoot somebody that I really don't like, because that person's made in the image of God and deserving of dignity and respect and has certain rights that have been instilled by God. So all of these standards that we teach, we hold these doctrines dear. These, these are based in Genesis. They're based in creation. The fact that God's word is true from the beginning. If, on the other hand, evolution were true, then you would have, logically, if you're going to be consistent, you would have a, set, a different set of standards. Uh, why would you have laws in an evolutionary universe? If we're just chemical accidents, there's, there's no laws other than the laws of chemistry. There's no moral laws in an evolutionary universe. If you think about it, evolution is all about the strong dominating over the weak. That's how evolution is supposed to progress. But laws are designed to protect the weak from the strong. If you think about it, they're anti-evolutionary by their very nature. Or, or for that matter, why not do what you want with sex? If we're just animals, that's pretty much what animals do. They do what's instinctive. Why shouldn't we? Makes sense. Uh, abortion, well, why not? If, if people are just animals, Get rid of spare cats, get rid of spare kids. Why not? And I'm not suggesting that evolution is the cause of all these problems. Sin is the cause of all those problems. I get that. But I am suggesting that evolution gives people a way to try and justify that sin in their minds. Because you cannot defend these doctrines on this foundation. It, does, it doesn't work. Christian doctrines are rooted, directly or indirectly, in Genesis. They really are. Jesus understood this in his earthly ministry. Jesus often quoted or alluded to Genesis in some fashion, quite frequently, actually. If you read in Matthew 19, when the religious leaders were asking Jesus about divorce, to explain marriage, Jesus went back and quoted Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And he quoted it like he believed it, like real history. How about that? As the basis for marriage. So what's happened in our culture is that foundation in Genesis has been eroded in the minds of people. People think, well, you can't, trust, you can't trust Genesis anymore. We now know that's just a fairy tale. Science tells us evolution's the way life came about. Well, then you can't defend the doctrines that are based on it. Why would you have the laws that, that God has ordained? Why would you have marriage being one man and one woman for life if Adam and Eve's just a fairy tale and not real history? And folks, that's not, that's not just a hypothetical scenario. That's happening. That's exactly what we're seeing in our culture today. People saying, well, you know, there's no Adam and Eve. That's just a fairy tale. Marriage is just a cultural trend. And hey, the culture changes, so why shouldn't the definition of marriage change? That is exactly the argument 
that people make when they want to do away with the Christian conception of marriage. That's it. See, a lot of people think, well, but Dr. Lyle, I don't have time to worry about you know, creation and evolution because we have all these problems in our society. Marriage is under attack. We have bad laws on the books and so on. My point is there's a connection. You give up that foundation, you cannot logically, rationally defend the doctrines that are based on it. You can't. We need to recognize our foundations are under attack, and if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? A lot of Christians have even been misled in this area, and they think, well, you know, I'm a Christian, I, I trust in Jesus, praise God, I'm glad you do, but then they say, but I'm not sure about Genesis. You know, the scientists tell me that's not the way that life came about, and so I think Genesis is just, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a myth, or it's maybe got some spiritual truth in it, or it's like a parable. Genesis is not written that way, though. It's not written like a parable. You know those verses that you love to read before you go to bed, and so-and-so begets so-and-so, and they beget so-and-so. Those genealogies like you find in Genesis 5. Well, those verses are there for a reason. They're there to tell us that Genesis is real history, and it tells us the names of these individuals, and in many cases how long they lived, and the names of at least one of their children, and so on. Now, the Bible does use parables at, point, at, at points. That was the Actually, that was the main... Uh, method of Jesus' earthly teaching ministry was to use parables, but that's where you take something that's physical that we're all familiar with and you use it to explain something that's spiritual by analogy. That's a parable. That's not what's happening here, right? I mean, parables usually don't have specific names anyway. It's, you know, in a parable, it's usually there was a certain man or there was a king and what have you, and you certainly wouldn't have a list of genealogies in a parable. That would be pointless. That doesn't make sense. And this is not a parable. Now, I recognize there are sections of the Bible that are not meant to be taken in a wooden literal sense. I get that. Places like the Psalms and Proverbs that use poetic language and they use metaphors and things like that. When the Bible says there's no rock like our God, it doesn't mean that God is basalt or igneous, right? We understand that. It's a metaphor. I get that. But is Genesis written in that poetic fashion? No, it's not. Not at all. In fact, it's very easy to recognize poetry in Hebrew. It's, it's quite different from English poetry, we tend to focus more on rhyme and meter, but in, in Hebrew poetry, they focused on parallelism, where you would say something and then you would say either the same thing or the flip side using different words. So the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Kind of says the same thing using different words, doesn't it? It's similar. So that's parallelism. And you'll find that throughout the Psalms and, and the Proverbs and so on. It's beautiful. That's how you recognize poetry in Hebrew. You don't find that in Genesis. It's not there. You do not find synonymous or antithetical parallelism in Genesis. There's no evidence of poetry there. If you think about it, that would be a terrible poem. <laughs> and so-and-so begets so-and-so. No, that's not going to work. And by the way, the style that it is written in is historical narrative. That's the way that the Jews recorded their history. And it's, it's even more obvious if you know something about the Hebrew language, the frequent use of the Vav consecutive, and so on, which Genesis makes use of. And so it's, it's very clear that, that Genesis is intending to record history, literal history. And so, and by the way, those genealogies, they lead up to Jesus Christ. And you can read about those in Matthew and in Luke. Okay, and so then my question for Christians, and I, and I don't doubt their salvation, who say, I trust in Jesus for, for my salvation. But, but then they say, but I don't think Adam's real. I think Adam's just a metaphor. But Jesus is descended from Adam. You're saying Jesus descended from so-and-so, descended from so-and-so, descended from a metaphor? Folks, you don't have to be an expert in genetics to know that a real person cannot be descended from a metaphorical person. Right? What would that transitional form look like? That's not going to work. It is theologically important that Jesus is descended from a real Adam, and so are we all. That makes Jesus our relative. He's our blood relative. We're related to Christ. That's awesome. You say, why is that theologically important? Because according to biblical law, only a relative can save you. There's an important concept called the kinsman redeemer. It's because Christ's blood is the same as our blood in the sense that we're all descended from Adam, that his blood counts on the cross for us. That's why the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, the Bible says in Hebrews 10.4. Now, they were used symbolically in the Old Testament to point forward to Christ, but they can't pay for sins because we're not related to animals. Unless, of course, evolution's true, in which case that doctrine's gone, isn't it? Yeah. You see, even the gospel message is founded in the literal history of Genesis. Where do we learn that death is the penalty for sin? It's in Genesis. Now, that's reiterated throughout the scriptures, but it's, 
<laughs> it's, found, its origin is in Genesis. Where do we learn that man needs a savior? It's in Genesis. Putting it another way, which Adam is non-essential to the gospel? Is it the first Adam that made it necessary for us to be saved? Or is it Jesus Christ, whom the Bible calls the last Adam, who made it possible for us to be saved, who accomplished salvation for all of his people? For as an Adam will die, even so in Christ shall all shall be made alive. Which one is unnecessary? Well, and again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, uh, that you know, people need to understand and, and believe in a literal Genesis in order to be saved. We're saved by God's grace, we're saved, and, and that's received through faith, which God gives us. And we don't want to add to that. But I am suggesting that salvation doesn't make sense logically apart from a literal Genesis. It really doesn't. Because what are you being saved from? You learn about sin in Genesis, disobedience to God and its penalty. That's all in Genesis. The Bible really is the history book of the universe because it starts in the beginning, God created, and it tells us the important events that have happened throughout history in terms of our relationship with God. And I find that a lot of people like the morality the Bible teaches, but they want to reject the history. Isn't that true? Even atheists like some of the morality the Bible teaches. They read, thou shalt not steal. They're, oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to have their wallet stolen. Thou shalt not murder. They, well, they like that one. That's, the Bible got that one right. They don't want to be murdered. Who would, right? But then they want to reject the history. But my point is, the morality comes out of the history. You realize that? Why is it wrong to steal? Because God has apportioned to everyone as, as he sees fit. God's the one who ultimately owns everything. That's the Genesis concept. Why is it wrong to murder? Because man is made in the image of God. Where do we learn that? Genesis. You see, the morality comes out of the history. Jesus put it to this way when he was speaking to Nicodemus. He said, I've told you earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? You see, the Bible talks about earthly things like the days of creation, Noah's flood, confusion of tongues at Babel, matters of earth history, earthly things. And the Bible talks about heavenly things, spiritual matters. Morality, salvation. Maybe you say, yes, but I'm not sure that I believe those details in Genesis. I'm not sure that I really believe that God created in six days. I'm not sure there really was a worldwide flood. If God didn't get the details right in Genesis, how can you trust that he got the details right on how to inherit eternal life? That's what I want to know. Does God know how to communicate or doesn't he? Does God know how to write a book that would communicate clearly to us? I think he does. I think any God who can speak the universe into existence can probably write a book I've written books. It's not that hard. <laughs> well, it's hard, but it's, my point is it's easier than speaking the universe into existence. Quite a bit. But people want to have it both ways. They want to have, on the one hand, you got God's infallible word, you got man's fallible word. Why do people want to change the infallible one when they want these two to agree? And people do want them to agree. Maybe to be academically respected. Maybe they think they'll be academically respected. If, well, I want to, I'm a Christian, but I want to believe in evolution so I can be like all the smart people. <laughs> of course... Not all the smart people believe in evolution, I can tell you that. But nonetheless, why is it we want to change the Bible to match evolution rather than the reverse? Why not interpret Darwin's book poetically and say, well, he didn't really mean evolution. It's just symbolic for biblical creation. Well, people don't do that. And by the way, the one that you modify is the one you don't ultimately have your faith in. Think about that. If you, if you have your ultimate faith in the Bible, then you're not going to touch it. If that's your ultimate standard, you can't modify it because you'd need a greater standard to tell you how to modify it. And if you think about it, this is not the way that Jesus responded in his earthly ministry. Oh, the, the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees and Sadducees, were masterful at reinterpreting God's word to match up with their traditions. And how did Jesus respond to that? Did he respond with modern political correctness? They say, well, that's not my personal opinion, but you know, we, we don't need to get all upset about this. It's not a salvation after it all, so let's just all hold hands and sing kumbaya, right? Let's just agree to disagree. That's not the way Jesus responded. He would respond with, it is written. Have you not read? Isn't that interesting? He took people back to the authority of the written word. And you do understand, of course, when Jesus says to the religious leaders, have you not read? You do understand he's, he's using sarcasm. We don't tend to think of our Lord doing that, but he, he did it, and he did it very masterfully, by the way. Uh, have you not read? Well, of course they'd read it. They hadn't applied what they had read. They hadn't accepted it. They hadn't internalized it. I think it's interesting that our Lord took the Bible to be the ultimate standard. It is written, and that settled the matter. 
Isn't that fascinating? Because Jesus is God, and he could have said, because I'm God and I said so. And that would have been perfectly fine. But instead, he appealed to the written word, which he himself inspired, of course. And I think that's as a pattern for us, because we can't say, I'm God and I said so, but we can say, God has said in his word. We can say, it is written. Have you not read? You can think of the culture war that's going on today, a bit like these two cities. So you have, you have Christianity based on uh, creation. God's word is true from the beginning. And then the other main faith system in our culture today, secular humanism, based on evolution, man independent from God determines truth. And how are we fighting this war? Maybe not as effectively as we could be. We're arguing over issues that maybe aren't so critical. We're zapping these billboards, and it's okay to do that. We should, we should do some of that. I'm, I'm all for fighting abortion and racism and so on. But if that's all we're doing, we're just, we're just trying to alleviate symptoms rather than dealing with the root of the problem. Because those issues are going to keep coming back as long as that edifice is in place. And the worst thing we could be doing is shooting our own foundation, representing Christians who say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe about Genesis, zap. Uh, you don't need to believe in the literal, literal history. That's just a myth or something. Zap. Well, all the, all the Christian doctrines are based on the literal history in Genesis. And the secular humanists are smart. They're aiming at our foundation. They're saying, well, you can't trust the Bible because you can't trust that first verse. We know that's myth. That's just silly, superstitious nonsense. Well, what's the solution? I do think it's fine to zap some billboards and point out that these things are issues and we need to deal with these. That's fine, but we need to do more than that. We need to uh, do some damage ourselves and point out that secular humanism, it, 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 based on evolution, it's, it's not rational. It wouldn't make sense of science or logic or morality. It can't explain those things. We need to defend ourselves against these evolutionists that, that make these really bad arguments. I have yet to hear a good argument for evolution. They're always either factually incorrect or they, have, they commit one or more logical fallacies. And we need to point that out graciously, but we do need to point it out. We need to point out that evolution is scientifically bankrupt. It's not something that has good scientific support. We'll talk about that later today. And I'll show you some evidence that you can use to open the door to get people to think. And of course, ultimately, you want to get to the ultimate proof and show people that science actually wouldn't even be possible in an evolutionary universe, where you couldn't have any confidence that your senses are reliable or that there are patterns in nature. And then we need to repair the damage that's been done to creation and say, you can trust in Genesis, you can trust in God's word from the beginning. And that's, by the way, that's the only way the gospel, gospel is going to make sense, is if you start with Genesis. If you don't do that, people are going to say, well, why would I need Jesus? I'm basically a good person. Have you heard people say that before? I'm basically good. I think God would let me into heaven. You hear somebody who says that, you've got somebody who doesn't accept Genesis. Because if you accept the Genesis history, and you ask, wait a minute, sir, man, how many sins did it take for Adam to ruin the world? Oh, one. Yeah, because God's absolutely perfect. His standard's perfect. When you sin against God, you're committing high treason against the king of kings, and that deserves capital punishment because it's treason. How, and how many sins have you committed? More than one? you got a problem. <laughs> God can't let you in that new heavens or new earth. You'd ruin it just like Adam ruined the original with your sin unpaid for. You need, that's why you need Jesus. And I like the way this is illustrated because you notice we're not aiming at the people. We want, we want them to be saved. We want them to jump off of that, that sinking city and swim over and join us on the city of God, Christianity. We want them to be saved. We're not bashful about that. There are some organizations that try to leave the Bible out of it and say, well, we'll just show you that there's a God of some sort. Well, the demons believe in God and tremble. It doesn't save them. A theist will end up in hell the same as an atheist if, if he hasn't trusted in Christ for salvation. We want people to be saved. And I believe it's best to put all your cards on the table and say, hey, I'm a Christian, and I'm not going to leave the Bible out of the conversation. If you don't believe it, that's your problem. You should believe it. It's the basis for rationality. It's the basis for science. It's the basis for morality. And then we want people to be saved. So that's why we do what we do. That's, apologetics is not an academic game. We want people to be saved. And ultimately, we know it's up to God to change their heart, but he calls us to make a defense of the faith. And that's quite an honor and a privilege, and it's something we're obligated to do. But what about the time scale of creation? There's some confusion there. There really shouldn't be. The Bible tells us that God created in six days. It tells us what he did on each of those days of creation. Human beings are made on the sixth day and so on. And from those genealogies, you love to read before you go to bed, so, so we get so-and-so. You add up the ages, 
and you find that God created a few thousand years ago, something like 6,000 years ago. Can't put an exact date on it because you know the ages are rounded to the nearest year and so on. But anyway, it'd be something like 6,000 years. It's not going to be millions of years. And yet, people have the idea that, but wait a minute, hasn't science proved millions of years, right? Because you, you, know, you, you, you have these rocks and you can radiometrically date them, right? Of course, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. People have misconceptions about that. They think it's almost like magic. You know, you take the rock, you just scan it with your tricorder, and it measures the age of goals, and, and it tells you the age of it. It's not really the way it works, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. But people, my point is people get intimidated, and they think the world has to be millions of years old. They think fossils have been deposited over hundreds of millions of years, because you'll see that in the textbooks, right? Millions of years. Got to be true. It's in the textbooks. And I confirmed it on the Internet, so it's got to be true, right? <laughs> Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later, too. Uh, my point is people get intimidated because there are brilliant people who believe in millions of years, and I don't deny that. And so we think, well, we've got to get the millions of years into the biblical timeline somehow because I'm a Christian. I do believe the Bible, but the scientists, they're really bright, and they say millions of years. got to fit that in somehow. Where are you going to put it, though? Because the Bible really indicates a few thousand years, something like 4,000 years between Adam and Christ's earthly ministry, which was about 2,000 years ago. Where are, you going to, where are you going to put the millions of years? You can't do it between Adam and Christ because that would destroy those genealogies, wouldn't it? You can't say so-and-so begets so-and-so, and then a million years later they beget so-and-so. That doesn't work. So, but there's only, there's only six days. Adam is made on the sixth day. So people try to put the millions of years into the creation week. Where are you going to do that? Where are you going to fit millions of years into six days? That's going to be a challenge. Well, there's a few different ways people try to do it. Some people would say, well, maybe the millions of years happens before the beginning. And that's pretty easy to refute, because if the millions of years happened before the beginning, then the beginning wouldn't be the beginning, right? It would be the much later. And that's not what the Bible says. It's in the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth. Or maybe there's an enormous gap between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. Well, the gap theory, we'll come back and talk about that a little bit later. There's no evidence for that in scriptures, um, in the scriptures. But one of the most common is that the idea that maybe the days weren't really days at all. Maybe they were actually vast ages, hundreds of millions of years each. So God really, he meant to say that he made in six ages, but for some reason he used the word day and hoped that we'd figure it out. It's a, kind of a strange concept. It's not something the Bible teaches. Now some people would say, oh, but Dr. Lyle, there's, there's support for this, right? Because the Bible says in 2 Peter 3.8, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years. So see, those days might have been long periods of time. And it's interesting what you can get away with when you pull verses out of context. Because 2 Peter 3.8 is not referring to the days of creation when you read it in context. Not at all. And I think it's interesting, too, people only quote the first part of the verse. What does the rest of the verse say? One day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Cancels that right out, you see. People only take the first part of the verse out of context to make time longer, I've never heard anybody take the second part out of context to make time shorter, right? Nobody says, well, the Bible indicates 2,000 years between Abraham and Christ's earthly ministry, but 1,000 years is as a day. It was really only 48 hours. People don't do that. That would be silly. And it's not saying a day is 1,000 years. It's saying it's as 1,000 years, like 1,000 years. It's a simile. It's comparing two things that are, in fact, very different, and that's what makes it so powerful. How, by the way, how can one day be with the Lord as 1,000 years and also 1,000 years as one day? How can it work both ways? Because God's beyond time. And that really is what the passage is teaching us. God's not a temporal being like we are. He doesn't live within time. Now, he can step into time and do things. That's not a problem. But he doesn't require space and time like we do because he's non-physical. He made space and time. God's beyond time. And when you read it in context, that's what it's talking about. It's God delaying, from a human perspective, judgment so that many people can be saved. And he's, it's explaining God's patience by pointing out that he's beyond time. Of course he's going to be patient. It's not referring to the days of creation. And, it's, and by the way, even if you said, well, you know, day equals 1,000 years, that would make the earth 12,000 years old instead of 6,000. It doesn't get you anywhere close to the millions of years that people think they need to add to Genesis. But it's not giving you permission to change the word day everywhere you see in Scripture to 1,000 years. That's not what it means. The Hebrew word for day is yom, and it's used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament of the Bible in singular and plural form. Plural form is yamim. And I find the only place people question, what does day mean, is in Genesis. Isn't that true? 
You don't hear people sitting around having Bible studies. Now, how long was Jonah really in the belly of the great fish? Were those ordinary days? Oh, I think they were thousands of years. He might have been in there for a very long time, right? <laughs> well, no wonder he repented, right? Or how long did Joshua really take to march around the walls of Jericho? Were those ordinary days? Oh, I think they were thousands of years. He might have been there a really long time, right? And you're laughing because you actually do know how to interpret Scripture. Because, you, of course, if, you know, they're ordinary days. We understand that. Now, some people say, oh, but the Hebrew word for day can mean a period of time longer than 24 hours. It can mean time in a generic sense. And that's true in certain contexts, primarily in poetic contexts. The main meaning, though, of Yom is day, as in an earth rotation or the light portion of an earth rotation. The same as our English word for day. In fact, our English word for day can mean a long period of time in poetic contexts. You might say, back in my father's day. Oh, yeah. That would be a period of time longer than 24 hours. I get that. It's being used metaphorically, poetically. I get that. That's legitimate. Back in my father's day, it took three days to drive across Texas during the day. So you got the word day used three times in singular and plural. I'll bet you didn't have any trouble understanding it because you used context. You used the surrounding words to constrain the meaning. So back in my father's day, okay, that's a poetic sense. That's a non-literal day. That's a period of time. It took three days. One of those would be ordinary days, wouldn't they? Because it's got a number with it. Three days to drive across Texas during the day. That would be the light portion of an ordinary day. It wouldn't be the poetic usage, not at all. And it's the same in Hebrew. It's really the same in any language. Most words have more than one meaning. You look in a dictionary, you get multiple definitions. Why is that? That's the way language is. Not just English. Most languages, words can have more than one meaning. And you say, well, it's astonishing that we can communicate at all. Not really, because we use context. Only one meaning will fit the context of a well-constructed sentence. Now, occasionally, somebody will come up with a bad sentence where it, a, a meaning will fit equally well in, in two different ways. And sometimes those are funny if they're done unintentionally. Uh, like I might say, um, the student center is giving away free guitars, no strings attached. <laughs> what do you mean by that? That's not a well-constructed sentence, is it? Because there's more than one possible meaning that fits. But, that's a, but in a good sentence, and God's going to write good sentences, there's only one meaning that will fit the context. Okay? God is not the author of confusion, so he's not going to write ambiguous sentences in his word. And so we're, let's take a look at the context surrounding the word day, and we'll just take a look outside of Genesis 1, where we all agree on what it means. So, for example, when the word day is used with a number, like the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, is in an ordered list, and that happens over 400 times outside Genesis 1, we all agree that's an ordinary day. Of course, if I said on the third day he went up to such and such a city, you'd say, well, yeah, that's an ordinary, those are earth rotations, I get that. But if I said there was evening and morning, even if the word day is not there, what's an evening plus a morning? That's a day, right? That's the limits of a day. And so we, we get that. That happens 38 times outside of Genesis 1. We all agree that's an ordinary uh, day. If I said there was evening that day, or if I said there was morning that day, either one of those would indicate I'm talking about an ordinary day, right? Evening with day or morning with day happens 23 times each outside of Genesis 1. We all agree those are ordinary days. Or if I said there was day, then there was night. As long as I'm in the historical narrative section of the Bible where we're dealing with real history, of course, if I said there was day and then there was night, you know I'm talking about earth rotations. We get that. So these are contextual clues that indicate that we're dealing with an ordinary day. Day with a number, day with, day with evening or day with morning, or just evening and morning by themselves, or day with night. So let's, take a, let's apply these contextual indicators to Genesis 1 and see if we can figure out what God meant when he said that he created in six days. Genesis 1.5, and God called the light day. So there he's defining it for you, days when it's light out. That would constitute an ordinary day, right? And the darkness he called night. So you have night contrasted with day. That's got to be an ordinary day. And the evening associated with day, that's got to be an ordinary day. And the morning associated with day, that's got to be an ordinary day. You have evening and morning together. That constitutes an ordinary day. And you get a number with it. God used about every contextual indicator he could possibly have used to indicate that, those are, that that's, that's an ordinary day, that first day anyway. Well, what about the other days of creation? Well, let's have a look here. Evening, morning, number, day. 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 That's pretty clear, isn't it? It's kind of like God saying, see their ordinary days, and in case you still don't get it, their ordinary days, and in case you're a little thick, their ordinary days, and in case you're really intellectually challenged, their ordinary days. I don't think it could have been any clearer. 
People say, well, he could have said 24-hour days, but then people would say, but what's an hour, right? There's just no satisfying some people. And by the way, hours hadn't been invented yet. They were invented by the Egyptians much later. So you can blame them for why we have a 24-hour in a day instead of something convenient like 10. But uh, anyway, people say, oh, but the sun wasn't created until the fourth day. That's true, and it's irrelevant. The sun doesn't have much to do with the length of the day. It's primarily the rotation of the earth that determines the length of the day. As long as you have a light source and a rotating planet, you're going to have day and night. Did we have a light source on the first day? Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Yeah, we had a light source. Did we have a rotating planet? And the evening and the morning were the first day. Yeah, we had a rotating planet. So God had a temporary light source for the first three days. He replaced it with the sun on day four, perhaps so the Hebrews would be less inclined to worship the sun. Most ancient cultures worship the sun as the primary source of life. And so God displaces it a few days. It's, God's saying it's not the primary source of life. I'm the primary source of life. God's, the, the sun is just an object that God created. And it was, well, he doesn't even give it a name in uh, Genesis. He gives something a name and you're more likely to think of it as a deity. No, it's just an object. It's just the greater light that God made to govern the day and so on. You know, all the other units of time, other than a week, have a basis in astronomy. Did you know that? But not a week. Where do we get the idea of a week? Well, all the other units of time have a basis in astronomy. A day is a rotation of Earth on its axis. A month is the amount of time it takes the moon to go through its phases. That's where we get the word month. It is a month. That's where it comes from. The uh, year is the amount of time it takes the Earth to go around the sun. But where do we get the idea of seven days in a week? It's not from astronomy. It's from history. It's because that's how long God chose to take to create and rest. And the Bible specifically tells us that in Exodus chapter 20. You know Exodus chapter 20. That's the Ten Commandments. We like to memorize sections of that chapter. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God goes on and explains, in six days you'll do all your labor, but the seventh is the Lord's. You're not to do any work on that day. Verse 11 is the explanation for why. Why do we have a seven-day week? Because in six days the Lord made the earth, the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. That's a pattern for us. And so my point is, if God had really created over six ages, hundreds of millions of years each, and then rested for an age of 100 million years, we'd have an awfully long work week, right? He'd never make it to the weekend, literally. You would not survive to the weekend. Back in Martin Luther's time, there were some people who were trying to squeeze the days of creation into one day, saying God actually made everything in one day for various philosophical reasons, not biblical reasons. I like how Martin Luther responded to this. He said, how long did the work of creation take? When Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever's in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. I love this last part, he says, but if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. <laughs> we need to remember that. If you don't understand how God could have done something, that's okay. He's smarter than you are. He's infinitely smarter than you are, in fact. But what about the gap theory then? There are folks who say, well, yeah, there's no doubt that uh, God created in six days, but maybe we can shove millions of years in between verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, God created them of the earth. And they like to translate verse 2, and the earth became without form and void and so on. You really can't translate it that way in that context. But um, there's, no, there's no evidence of any kind of gap in Genesis. And in fact, it's disallowed on the basis of Hebrew uh, grammar. So Genesis 1, this is Genesis 1 written in Hebrew. Hebrew reads right to left, opposite of English. So Now verse 2 uses a, a construction called a vav disjunctive. And that's where you have and, which is the Hebrew word and, and letter, it's vav, yeah, and the earth, vav ha'aretz. And when you have that, and the earth, and followed by a non-verb, that indicates a vav disjunctive, which is basically indicating that that is a comment on what came previously, a comment or explanation on what came previously. Uh, see, the normal Hebrew word order would be the verb first and said God, and created God, and so on. And so the verb comes first. But when you have the noun first, then that indicates a vav uh, disjunctive, and the earth was without form and void. So now the rest of Genesis is vav consecutive. That's different. That, that does follow in time. And this happened, and that happened, and so on. So verse 3 and on is vav consecutive. Verse 2, no. Verse 2, vav disjunctive, meaning it's a comment on verse 1. It's kind of like what we use parentheses for in English. It's, it's providing background information to give further explanation or clarification to the conditions that existed in verse 1. 
So you can think of it, you know, in, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, parentheses, and the earth was without form and void. It's explaining the conditions that existed when God first created the heavens and the earth. So my point is you cannot put a gap of time between verse 1 and verse 2 because verse 2 does not follow in time. It's not part of the narrative sequence. Rather, it's providing background information, uh, pointing out that the earth was initially without form and void. Why? Because God took six days to form it and fill it. It makes sense. So uh, it, without verse 2, you might think that, well, God created the heaven and the earth just like they are today, full of life and with continents separated from oceans. No. Verse 2 is saying, no, that's not the case. Initially, the earth was a ball of water, formless and void. It didn't have life on it. There was not even light yet. And then verse 3 and following is God creating the light and then creating the continents and creating the animals and so on. So you can't put a gap of time between verse 1 and 2 grammatically. Now, what about the science? Well, we'll talk more about this later, but there's a lot of science that confirms that the world is, is that creation was recent and not billions of years ago. The fact that we find C14 and just about everything that has carbon in it. C14 is an unstable variety of carbon that has a half-life of 5,700 years. C14 cannot last even 1 million years. And yet we find it in diamonds that are supposed to be billions of years old. They can't be billions of years old. They can't be more than a few thousand years old, or the C14 would have decayed away into nitrogen. Lots of stuff like that. We'll cover that a little bit later. So the question I want to ask now is, does it really matter, the age of the Earth? Does it matter? Because historically what happened is the secular scientists came along and said, the Bible's not true, because we know that the Earth is much, much older than the Bible indicates, because because we think we know how these rock layers were deposited, and we think it took millions of years. Now, of course, they weren't around to see those rock layers deposited, and so they don't actually know how long it took. But nonetheless, uh, you know, they, they reasoned that these must have taken millions of years. And a lot of the theologians, not all of them, but a lot of them compromised and said, well, maybe we can allow that because, after all, it's not a salvation issue. We don't want it to be a stumbling block, right? We just, we just want people to be saved. Who cares about the age of the earth? And I think they were well-meaning, but that doesn't make it right. The age of the earth is an important issue, albeit not directly a salvation issue, in the sense that no, nobody's claiming you have to believe in six days to be saved. We're saved by God's grace, received through faith in Christ, right? And we don't want to add to that. God, fortunately, does not require us to have perfect theology to be saved. Uh, we, but nonetheless, out of gratitude for our salvation, we ought to get our theology as right as possible. Um, so I'm going to say it's not, it's not a salvation issue in that sense, but it is an important issue. It's kind of like gravity. Gravity is not a salvation issue, but would you not agree it's an important issue? You cannot believe in gravity and still go to heaven. You'll probably get there a lot quicker that way, right? <laughs> it's an important issue. It's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's important because it is what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach that God created six days. Now, I'll grant most of us can't read the Bible in the original languages, and so we have to rely on a translation. And so, sometimes the translation doesn't get it quite right. So it's always good to go back and double-check, you know, am I really reading the text properly? And we can challenge each other. We can say, brother, I don't think you're reading this text right. I think this is what it means, and we should do that. But then when you go back and you study it, and you say, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, there, that's what the Bible says, that God created six days. Once you understand the Bible clearly teaches something, we are obligated to accept that. It's just that simple. And in fact, the section of the Bible that says in six days, God created the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, that's part of the Ten Commandments that was written in stone by the finger of God. That's awesome. Most, most of the Bible, God used people to write his word in a way that's a little mysterious to us because we, couldn't, we can't do that. But God used people and used their personalities to write exactly what he wanted them to write. But I think it's interesting. The one place that people most want to compromise is, is the section where God bypassed human beings and wrote it directly with his own finger in stone. That's the place you want to compromise? All scripture is inspired by God. I think in six days is inscribed by God. That's interesting. The same Bible that teaches that God created in six days also teaches the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Yes, the, the, that Jesus turned the water into wine, walked on water, calmed the storm, raised the dead, raised himself from the dead. The same Bible teaches all those things. Is that not correct? But if you say, yes, but I don't think I believe in the six days because most scientists say that's not possible. I got news for you. Most scientists would say virgin birth's not possible. Turning water into wine's not possible. Resurrection from the dead's not possible. You'd have to reject those two to be logically consistent. And you say, but wait a minute, Lyle. Those, the, those things on the right list, those are miracles. And so, you know, those go beyond science. And I'm thinking, wasn't the creation of the universe a miracle? If not, I'd like to see you do it. There's another reason why you don't want to add in the millions of years, and that concerns these fossils that we find all over the world. I would expect to find fossils all over the world because there was a 
worldwide flood. And of course, you're going to find fossils all over the earth. And we find aquatic organisms and land organisms mixed together. That's what you'd expect to find in a worldwide flood. We find aquatic uh, organisms buried on what is now land. And so, of course, it was flooded at some point. But you see, my secular colleagues, they don't believe in a worldwide flood. They believe that these fossils were deposited gradually over hundreds of millions of years. And if you accept that, if you accept the secular timeline, you've got a huge theological dilemma on your hands because a fossil is a dead thing. And if you got fossils 100 million years ago, you've got death before Adam sinned. In fact, you've got death before Adam existed. But doesn't the Bible say that sin and death came into the world as a result of Adam? By, by man came sin, by sin came death, and so on. The Bible teaches that in a number of places, not just in Genesis, but reiterated later in Romans and 1 Corinthians and so on. But if you believe in millions of years, even if you don't embrace evolution in the Darwinian sense, but nonetheless you believe in millions of years, then you've got by death came man. In which case death is not the penalty for Adam's sin. It already is something that was already in the world. So which is it? Is it by death came man or by man came death? Those are logically contrary positions. They cannot both be true. They can't. So here you have the... Uh, the Garden of Eden, Eve saying, God's creation is perfect. Adam's saying, God said it's very good. He's right. This is very good. And it, by the way, it wasn't just the Garden of Eden. It was God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good, the Bible says. All the Lord's works are perfect, the Bible says in Deuteronomy. So here's the problem, though. If you, if you think fossils are hundreds of millions of years old, then that means, they were, that means creatures were dying long before Adam and Eve were created long before God got around to creating them and called the world very good, in which case the Garden of Eden is sitting on top of millions of years of death, suffering, disease, bloodshed, and so on. Do you know we find fossils with evidence of disease in them, arthritis, cancer even? There's a whole field called paleopathology that studies disease in fossils. Now, were, the, were those diseases already in the world when God finally got around to creating Adam and Eve and said, oh, it's very good? If so, then that means disease is very good. Suffering is very good. Bloodshed, very good. In which case, when your friend gets sick, why would you bother praying for him? It's very good that they're sick. It's part of God's perfect plan for a perfect world, right? Uh, well, no, that's not right, is it? No, the world was very good when God created it. Today, it's not very good. There's a remnant of beauty in the world. Don't get me wrong. God still upholds his creation, but there's ugliness too because of man's sin. So you see, my point is those fossils can't be before Adam's sin. They have to be sometime after Adam's sin. That's when death entered the world. Now, some people might say, but oh, I think, Lyle, I think it's just uh, human death that was introduced when Adam sinned. Animals were already living and dying. But I don't think you can defend that scripturally. God cares about animals too, not to the same extent, those creatures that he made in his own image. But nonetheless, um, and if you think about it, when was animal death instituted? Well, it was when Adam sinned, right? Because when Adam sinned, God provided skins of clothing for Adam and Eve. Those would be animal skins, which means God killed an animal or animals to provide skins of clothing for Adam and Eve. I always thought maybe it was a lamb. The Bible doesn't say what animal it was, but that would make sense. Um, maybe pointing forward to the, the, the actual lamb who would actually pay for Adam and Eve's sins and not just cover them temporarily. So there's no doubt that the living animals also would have been uh, immortal had Adam not sinned. Now, some people say, oh, but I got you here, Lyle, because we know plants died before Adam and Eve sinned, right? Because they were eating plants or plant parts at least. So you had to have plant death, right? And the interesting thing is plants biblically are not considered alive. Isn't that interesting? The Bible has a special word, nephesh, nephesh kaya for living creatures. And it applies to human beings, and it applies to animals, but it's never, it's never applied to plants. Plants are never referred to as, as nephesh kaya anywhere in Scripture. They're not living in that sense. Now, modern biologists classify plants as living. I mean, that's okay. It's a different terminology. But uh, the Bible doesn't classify them as living. The Bible classifies them as food, albeit self-replicating food, for living creatures. And we sort of know that, right? You know there's a difference between a plant in an animal. A plant is not alive in the same way that an animal is, in the same way that we are. It's not conscious. It doesn't have blood. The Bible talks about the life being in the blood and so on. And, and we know that. You can talk about a dead plant, but you're being sort of metaphorical, aren't you? You can talk about a dead battery. It doesn't mean it was ever really alive. Yeah? And we know that. You come across a so-called dead tree. 
that's nice. I go sit on that for a little while, maybe take a picture of it, put it over the mantle. That's nice. If you come across a dead animal, you say, well, that's nice. I think I'm going to sit on that for a little while, take a picture. (laughs) That's different, isn't it? We recognize animal death as an intrusion into a world that was once perfect. But I can imagine that in the eternal state. I think there will be a plant cycle in the eternal state as well, but not animal death because that's an intrusion caused by Adam's sin. We understand that intuitively, and it's, it's something the Bible teaches. The Bible indicates that God made a very good world, a world that was ruined by man's sin. And, you know, and people are bothered by that. Well, why do animals have to die? Because Adam sinned. Because Adam was given dominion over the world. When someone is in authority and they mess up, it affects everyone under their authority. We know that. When the government does something stupid, we all, we all suffer as a result of it because we're under their authority. And so the world fell as a result of Adam's sin, but it will be made very good again as a result of Christ's obedience. And we can be a part of that very good earth, again, that very good new earth, without ruining it, only if our sin's been paid for. If you don't understand that principle, you can get mad at God when somebody dies. You can see some God of love you are. Why did you allow my friend to die? If you believe in millions of years, death and suffering are God's fault, not man's fault. Because man wasn't around. We all agree human beings don't go back hundreds of millions of years. Even the evolutionists concede that. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that it's a result of our sin that the world suffers. And so when somebody dies, we need to remember, that's what I deserve too. And it's only by God's grace that I take my next breath because I don't deserve it. We live in a very entitled society today especially the millennials, they're so entitled. I deserve free health care. I deserve free education. Actually, what you deserve is death and hell. You've earned that. Anything you get that's better than that is by God's grace. Mm. If if that's an attitude that everybody had, the world would be a lot different, wouldn't it? If you realize that it's only by God's grace and mercy that he did not execute you in, in your sleep for your high treason against him. There's another problem, though, that comes up when people try to add the millions of years, and that has to do with the flood. Because as I mentioned, secularists do not believe in a worldwide flood because either the fossils were deposited gradually over hundreds of millions of years or the bulk of them were deposited by that one worldwide flood. That would certainly do it. You can't have both. A worldwide flood would destroy any previous fossil record. You'd lose all your so-called evidence for millions of years, which is, in fact, what, what the secularists believe. No worldwide flood, millions of years instead. And some Christians have even bought into that, and they've said, well, maybe there was a flood, but it wasn't, it wasn't really global. I'm thinking of a prominent teacher who goes around teaching that there was a flood, but it was just limited to the Mesopotamia Valley, that Noah's flood was limited to Mesopotamia. And he believes every human was living in Mesopotamia at the time, which is kind of interesting. What does the Bible have to say, though? It's always good to go back and double-check, make sure we're reading it right. Genesis 6.17, God says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy what, a few things here and there? No, it's to destroy all flesh. Where is the breath of life from, what, the local Mesopotamia Valley? No, it's from under heaven. That would mean everything under the sky, which would be everything, right? Where is the breath of life from under heaven? And everything that is in the earth shall die. Sounds like a global flood. Well, let's read on. Genesis 7, 19 through 20. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail. The mountains were covered. By a local flood, that doesn't make sense. No, it's a global flood. All flesh died that moved upon the earth, every creeping thing, every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. Every living substance was destroyed. Noah only remained alive and they that were with him on the ark. It's a global flood, isn't it? The Bible's clear about that. By the way, you can't have a local flood that covers the high hills. Right? Think about that. What would that look like? It would look like this. <laughs> Local floods don't cover high hills. It, it, it is the nature of water and gravity. That doesn't work. Uh, what was the purpose of the rainbow? God's promise never to send another global flood. But if it was just a local flood and God was promising never to send another local flood, then God has broken his promise thousands of times because we do have local floods. We do. Why build an ark the size of an ocean liner? Take two of every air-breathing land animal on board for a local flood that you knew was coming. Why not just... Move, right? (laughs) 
Well, I want to skip some of these for time's sake. I, I do want to sum it up with this cross series. The church is preaching a message. Come to Jesus. Come to the cross and be saved. The gospel. We want to be preaching that. That's, that's important. My point is there's been an attack in the form of millions of years. That's one of the attacks on Scripture, and that impacts. And the funny thing is we're inclined to think uh, because of where that impacts, well, it's a miss. Millions of years is not an attack on the gospel, right? That's a side issue. But what we fail to recognize often is that millions of years is an attack on the literal history of Genesis. If millions of years is true, then the literal history of Genesis is not. And the gospel is based on the literal history of Genesis. Genesis explains why it is that we need a savior. Satan's crafty. If he were aiming at the cross, oh, we'd be concerned about that. You can get books to defend the resurrection of Christ. We get that that's important. That's a salvation issue. But Satan names that are foundation, we think, well, it's just a side issue. That's not important. When really, it's a foundational issue. It's an attack on the authority of God's word at the very beginning, at the very root. And then these different attacks historically came. Naturalism, evolution, eight men, millions of years, no global flood, and they impact. And again, we're, we think, well, that's a miss. Didn't hit the cross when really it was a direct hit. And the result of all these different attacks on Genesis is unbelief. Just as Jesus pointed out, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? It's a pretty good question. These different symptoms happen. Prayer is outlawed in schools. We say, hey, trust, trust in Jesus. Well, cre creation's outlawed in schools. And, well, Jesus is going to return. Yes, he is, but he's told us to do some things in the meantime, like make disciples of all nations. And the Bible's outlawed in schools. We say, let's get the Bible back into schools. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm all, I'm all for doing politically what can be done, but my point is, if the culture is going to be one to Christ, it's not going to be through politics. It's not. It's going to be through the proclamation of the gospel, and that's only going to make sense if you can defend the gospel. You can defend it beginning in Genesis. And then the Ten Commandments outlawed in schools, and, well, let's concentrate on worship. And, and don't get me wrong, the church can be doing a lot of great things, but if we're not being obedient in Christ's command to be ready to give an answer, then we've missed the boat, really. And, and again, the gospel in our culture has become obscured by unbelief because we live in a culture now where people do not respect the Bible as they used to. And that begins with those attacks on Genesis. It really does. So that's why I founded the Biblical Science Institute. We're a parachurch ministry. Of course, I'm a member of my own uh, local church body. But as a ministry, we come alongside the church, repair the damage that's been done. We show you that these are attacks on the Christian faith. We want to warn you that these are attacks on the Christian faith, and then we show you how to defend the faith against all those different issues, you see, using the various resources that we produce. That's why we do what we do. And then ultimately, we'd like to be in the background because we'd like everyone in the church to recognize that these are attacks on the Christian faith, and then we'd like everyone in the church to be able to defend the faith against these issues. And you don't have to go out and get a PhD to do that. God calls a few of us to go out and get a PhD and specialize in certain fields and then write about that information and bring the cookies down onto the bottom shelf so that everybody can understand that the gospel is true beginning in Genesis. And then the church can say, come to Jesus, come to the cross and be saved. And people say, I get it now, I understand. It's because what Adam did, that I'm, I'm born a sinner. I'm born a rebel against God. And I would ruin that new earth the same way Adam ruined the original unless my sin is paid for. That's why I need a savior. That's why I need Jesus. So again, check us out on the web, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. The book that covers this topic and in, in greater depth, Understanding Genesis. And I go into more depth too on how do we know that the days are really days and, and so on. And we have, the, we have this presentation on DVD as well, Understanding Genesis. Uh, we talked about ultimate proof of creation last night, how to give a bulletproof argument for biblical creation and the Bible in general, and the DVD that goes along with that, along with uh, two follow-ups, Nuclear Strength Apologetics, Discerning Truth, How to Spot Logical Fallacies and Arguments that Evolutionists Tend to Make, uh, Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky, How to Better Enjoy the Night Sky from a Christian Perspective. If you ever wanted to learn the constellations, or and uh, what, what can you see in binoculars? You know you can see Saturn's rings in binoculars. You just got to know which one's Saturn. That's where the book will help you. So uh, if you wanted to get a telescope, what kind you might want to get and how to use it. Uh, so that's Stargazer's. That's a fun book. Taking Back Astronomy is the topic I'll cover next and how the universe declares God's glory. Not a big bang or billions of years. Keeping Faith in an Age of Reason, answering over 400 alleged Bible contradictions. And you find that not one of them is a legitimate contradiction. Physics of Einstein. What about black holes and, and time warps and wormholes and distant starlight and that kind of thing. That's a fun resource. I wrote it uh, on a layman level, but there are in-depth boxes. If you want to go into more information, you can read those as well. Introduction to Logic. 
uh, a complete curriculum explaining informal logic from a Christian perspective and pointing out that in fact, logic is based on the Christian worldview. You cannot make sense of laws of logic apart from the Christian worldview. There's also a teacher's guide that goes with that if you'd like to use it for homeschool. I really had homeschoolers in mind when I wrote the book, but some people just wanna get better at logic and read it, so there you go. Uh, DVDs like The Created Cosmos takes you on a tour of the, of the uh, universe from a biblical perspective. Creation evangelism, how to take it to the streets, how to use creation to better uh, to better evangelize, to better share your faith with your friends. Uh, dinosaurs in the Bible, that's a fun one, especially for the youth. The youth love dinosaurs, and I, I often think God created dinosaurs just to get kids interested in the Bible, because the Bible does have something to say about dinosaurs, and so that's a fun DVD on that topic. Astronomy Reveals Creation, I'll be handling that next. Keep in mind you can get all the um, but these prices aren't right, but you can get all of the books and DVDs together for discounted prices that you'll see back there. We, we sometimes swap out books, so the prices change a little bit. So don't forget to sign up for a free, free, free monthly newsletter, and make sure you put your email address very legibly, because you will get it once a month in your email, unless you don't put it legibly, in which case you will get nothing. And again, check us out on the web, biblicalscienceinstitute.com, and we'll be back in a little bit to talk about astronomy. So thank you very much. Mm -hmm.